with the three shots total, though, first one you think it's reasonable comes from the repository. I agree. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah, I think it's reasonable. There is question. There are questions around Lee Harvey Oswald doing it, though, which I also hinted at earlier, because in the stairwell there, at the same exact time, there were women who were going up when he's supposed to be descending, and he was not. He yeah. was then downstairs, and obviously... Stu Wexler did an amazing job when I had him in here going through Oswald's whole checkered history. I mean, it was unreal, like all the stuff he went through. My friend Danny Jones, as I mentioned, did an amazing podcast with John Newman where he discussed some of it too. But, you know, moving on to the, to, to the bullets and away from that, second one, probably Grassy Knoll. Where would, I'm, I'm forgetting it right now. There's one, the first one goes through the neck. Mm-hmm. The second one, Goes wide. Goes wide. That's yeah, and right. it strikes the curb. If you're if you're driving in the limo, if you're riding in the limo, God help us, um, it goes wide right, according to the Warren Commission, and strikes the curb. And you've got a bystander that's over there, and he's injured. Um, it, it's hit it's, by the bullet. Uh, it, well, a fragment. A fragment, fragment kicks up and and injures that individual. And then the third shot um, is. The kill shot. It's a headshot. Not that this wasn't a kill shot. Okay. This is. He could have lived from that, though. He could have. He would have been in a greatly diminished state. Um, but I don't know because we didn't examine the organs of the neck. Yeah. I was going to say, what if, if you were able to stop the bleeding and get him to emergency surgery, what? It's not like it's going through the heart or anything. No, but, uh, you know, you're going through a very vascular area in there, in mm. the neck. So I don't know what was clipped. I don't know if they could have gotten to that to kind of stem the flow of things. Uh, what would be the possibility that he could survive that? I have no idea. We'll never know because we don't know enough about the um, the extent of the trauma in that area since it was a limited dissection. But it, but if the second one misses wide – now, when they said wide right, right on the Warren Commission, they're trying to say it's from behind wide right. Right, and it hits the curb. Wide left. If you're going from the rear. Yes, okay. Yeah, so they're left. saying wide left, but yes. it would be wide right if you're looking from the grassy knoll. Yes, yes, it would. So if you're – and then if you're firing – if an individual were to have fired from the grassy knoll, it would – that's the big question is what happened to that particular round? Did it just disintegrate or did it did it – you know, what What was the status of that round? And again, you've got this, as I alluded to, you've got this little metal storm that's taking place inside uh, the cranial vault. You know, it's you can see it, right. uh, you know, demonstrated on the X-ray at that point in time. Uh, there were several assessments that were done uh, from a ballistic study. I think probably one of the most curious ones, I think it was CBS. I can't remember what year. Was that 66? Where... <clears throat> You know, they set up a, um, a moving target from a, a tower, and they have this thing. If you ever get a chance to check out this video, it's pretty interesting, where they're, they've got this uh, – it's, it's almost on a rail where they've got this uh, target that is moving away from, from the, uh, from the uh, book depository or what would have been approximating the height of the book depository. So if, if we're – you know, uh, you've got this – uh, these individuals that are firing down range at this target that's moving away. And they were attempting to demonstrate if this was or was not possible. Um, and then you have, there was an FBI analysis. 
Um, there was a CIA analysis, and then it, the CIA differed from what the FBI came up with. Initially, I think the CIA had, and we didn't find out this until years later, that they felt as though that there was a shot that came forward, came from Ford of of the uh, of the vehicle toward the president. Well, <clears throat> so not the grassy knoll. Uh, no, it would have. Okay, probably right. approximated the grassy knoll. The CIA, <laughs> made? yeah, yeah. One of their ballistic studies had, yeah. Mm-hmm. The C- CIA, the same, mm-hmm. yeah. How many years later was that? When they- I'm not. I'm not really sure. To tell the truth, um, I don't know. Uh, that certainly be something to to take a look at. Because I- that that is one of the great misconceptions when you're talking about the potential sinister mm-hmm. nature of this case. That even. I still accidentally make the mistake of we all do when we say it out loud and we quickly we quickly just go CIA killed him or whatever. This was a lot of the people who are suspects here don't just involve, you know, like you're at that point former director Alan Dulles, but of CIA, but also like the Curtis LeMay's, like guys in the military who do yeah. work with the CIA as a part mm-hmm. of their job in the government, but like this wasn't point being this wasn't this was like a full potential conspiracy at its peak if if that's indeed what it was yeah and isn't that interesting that uh, you begin to think about how many people would have had to have been involved at it in so so many levels you know you're you're thinking you know how is it possible to get <clears throat> to get each one of these agencies kind of yes. coalescing around this one this one thing this one goal uh, moving forward um I, I don't know maybe it only takes a few kind of like caesar um where it only took a few senators you know in order to facilitate this um and they were all in one accord at least the ones that showed up with with daggers um who, who knows uh, and how many people knew about it before it was going to happen, referencing uh, Caesar. Uh, it's hard. It's very, very difficult for more than one person to keep a secret. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that's one of the things that you're kind of left with in all of this. You know, how 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 can you have this, the totality of the steaming pile of crap that this investigation is? Is it just dumb luck? That if you have a group of conspirators, that they're they're also going to have the Keystone cops that are handling this thing at the same time. That you just happen to fall ass backwards into it, and it you know all of your wildest fantasies come true. Um, everything that you had planned. How how does how does that actually work out? Hey guys, I need your help with three quick things. And if you're watching me on Spotify video right now, you can see this timer to my right. It is going to be fast. Number one, if you are not already following the show, please hit that follow button on Spotify or whatever audio platform you're on. Number two, if you're on Spotify right now, on our show's homepage in the description, you will see a link to our Spotify podcast clips channel. That's right. We are posting clips from this podcast every single day on there. There is a whole library. So go over there and follow. And finally, number three, if you are on Spotify or Apple, please leave a five-star review. It is a huge, huge help to this show. Now, let's get to the episode. Well, if you create multiple intermediaries, it gets things confusing. So if I – forget the Kennedy assassination for a second. If I pay a guy 
to go talk to another guy with the order that he's going to go talk to another guy who's going to go give a final order to another random dude somewhere to cross the street in New York City on 42nd Street at this time on Wednesday. And when he does that, he happens to do it at a perfect time that five minutes later somebody gets shot. There's too many layers there for even the people to be questioning it. You create a, a realm of uncertainty that people may not even be like, wow, was I involved with that or wasn't I? Like they may not even know. Right. Now, there's some of it where there has to be people on the ground who are aware of what's going on. When Jack Ruby comes out and shoots Lee Harvey Oswald, <clears throat> he knew what he was doing. And there, you know, that's that's a whole different level right there. But, you know, I always think how you do right there with the secrets thing, like how the hell do people – do so once like once it gets to a certain number of people statistically how do all these people keep secrets and if you can keep it tight enough and you have enough blackmail and enough you know mm-hmm. threats of whatever people will keep it i you know and this is a total let me just hedge on this and say this is a total bullshit he said she said that you know some people will probably yell at me in the comments for bringing up but take this with an enormous grain of salt when i was when I was a little younger, I knew someone who had a family member in an extremely high place, mm-hmm. extremely high place. And, you know, he said very, he didn't run around saying it to people, but it was said one time like that his family member knew exactly who killed Kennedy. When, where, how, and why. Like down to who was involved, everything, and he can never say. And that could be total bullshit. Let's just call that what it is. Mm-hmm. It could be someone blowing smoke up my ass. In fact, there's probably a 50% chance it is, maybe more. But if that is the case, that wouldn't surprise me to see that there are just some things that like you don't talk about. You you just it's it's beyond it because as I always say even though this is 60 years ago, like people, including me, will complain. They're like, oh, my God, they haven't released these goddamn reports. They keep pushing them down, down, down the – kicking the can down the road here. At the same time, I then put myself in the shoes of these people as badly as I want to see those things and as badly as I want to know for right. sure exactly what happened. I'm like, if they release this and even some high-ranking people operating on their own, meaning not in a government context, mm-hmm. but operating on their own, if they held the title of director of blank or general right. of blank, and it is on paper and proven, even if it's 60, 70 years later, right. we live in a society, and I understand this, where groups of people will be like, that can't exist anymore. Mm. It can't exist. As an example, my friend Jim DiOrio, special agent in the FBI, I've been on this podcast a bunch he worked some insane investigations in his career even before the FBI when he was an Army Ranger. One of the cases he worked was TWA 800 mm-hmm. in 1996. It was it was the plane that crashed, blew up, whatever, in off the coast of Long Island, full civilian jet that was supposed to be going to Europe. And his role on that case was he was responsible for interviewing every expert pilot in the world like that they could get their hands on and asking right. name a way this could have happened just one even if it's a one billionth percent chance name a way that this plane could have had that happen without something shooting it down 
every pilot said there is no way it was shot down. And so when you talk to Jim about what happened, he is he reflects the opinion of most of the people on the case here that worked it. He said it was in almost all likelihood an accident. We had a naval ship off the coast in Long Island. Yep. There was testing going on. It was an accident. They didn't mean to hit it. The point being, if that ever came out, though, right. it was a God's honest accident. No one was trying to shoot that down. There will be such a government outcry and litigation that now naval ships won't be able to test anything ever, which is a part of like our military behaviors that we have to do. So you understand what I'm saying? There's yeah, such yeah, yeah. a backlash that you are stuck in a lose-lose where you either keep the secret and you're the asshole like government cover-up or you let the secret out and now – Shit burns. Yeah, I had a friend of mine many years ago saying <clears> – <throat> he said to me when we were actually discussing this, uh, and I think he had read Garrison's book mm. uh, or one of his books. Uh, Garrison wrote several um, or a couple. Um, we were – and this is even before – this is many years ago. I, I remember now. Uh, I was still an undergraduate in college, and he <clears> – <throat> We were having a discussion about Kennedy, and he said, "Who cares? What does it matter? You know, we're and this was in, this would have been in the '80s. You know, and his his idea was, I, I want to keep going on down this road. Uh, my life is fine. How does this impact? You know, how does this impact me? And I think a lot of people ask those questions. I know that that I have sometimes. You know, because it's really easy to get distracted uh, with all of the the peripheral, uh, peripheral issues in the case as it applies to who was involved and who was not involved, who had knowledge, uh, who may have gained knowledge after the fact and has decided to, to hold back on. And, you know, and I think I could talk about this. I could study it. I could think about it and have discussions with people for years and years. But is it, is it going to accomplish anything? And then I always return back to two things. Um, First off, as a medical legal person, I look at it and and I think, uh, well, this is a real um, uh, this is a real stain on the history of my profession uh, relative to how the president's remains were treated, um, what happened to them, how they were examined, how they were not examined, um, and then um, coming back from it, as sappy as it sounds, um, you know, I'm patriot. And mm. he was my president, even if I was in vitro. <laughs> uh, he was uh, he was our president, and um, I, I want to try to to understand this. If there was, I, I I can't make sense of it from a logical standpoint to try to understand the science and how that kind of marries up with what the reality is that we're faced with uh, in the wake of the wake of this case, because it goes to, I think that it, <clears throat> I'm really getting out of my lane, but. I think about it and I think about, um, you know, when I first started uh, having this discussion with you, Julian, a little while back, you know, I, I said that we've become more cynical mm. uh, in since since the the assassination. And I think that that there, there is a general mistrust uh, of of officials. And a lot of it is because nothing, not everything has been released. They They won't. 
they won't come out and give us all of the data so that we can make our own judgments. Uh, maybe they don't trust us to make our own judgments. Exactly. Maybe, they're, maybe they're fearful of us making our own judgments. I have no idea. But I know that in my little slice of the pie, my little world, um, this defies any kind of reasonable uh, explanation as far as the science is concerned. And it certainly runs contrary to anything that we would do in practice nowadays. It's just, it's, it, it, it's, it offends something about it, the it's, it's very, it's very offensive, uh, intellectually insulting, I think is, is, is the way it kind of breaks down for me. Um, and I, I still, I, I return to Dr. Rose, you know, I think about that, that man, uh, um, who was a fantastic forensic pathologist, and there he was. He was that. <laughs> he was that one person that was standing there. That for that moment, Tom <sighs> Earl Rose was that one person in that horrible moment that said, "This is wrong. Mm-hmm. This is wrong," and. What happens? Hand goes to the weapon, pushes him against the wall. Said, "This is the way it's going to be." And he even tells them that this is in violation of Texas state statute. Right. Tells them that, makes them aware of it, and he was well aware of the law. He knew that it was wrong. And when they walked out of those doors with the president's body at that moment, Tom. You know, I often think about, you know, as not often, but as I've been, you know, kind of digging into all of this, you know, I think about <laughs> Dr. Rose watching them kind of vanish with the president's body thinking, what in the hell is going to happen? Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you what happened. Because after the president's body left, Rose went and did the autopsy on Officer Tibbetts. And mm, then... Who Oswald allegedly killed. Yes. Then he did the autopsy on Lee Harvey Oswald. Then he did the autopsy on Jack Ruby. Oh. Wait. Well, Ruby would have been years later, right? Like four years later? Something mm-hmm. like that? Yeah. He was still incarcerated there. He died of the big C. Right, right, right. Convenient. Let me bring this all around also. And this is a very interesting point. I think some some people may be interested in this. I don't know. Let's jump forward to 1968. Two people died in 68. RFK, MLK. Yeah. Where did RFK die? Where was he shot? California. He was, he was given a speech after winning the primary, right? At the ambassador. Uh, That's LA County. mm -hmm. Well, if you if you don't know who this person is, I, I recommend you look him up. He's again, he's he's one of the people that <laughs> I, I I think I, I reflect back. I met him two times, and he was one of the genuine, one of the most genuinely kind people I've met. That was a forensic pathologist. You talked about this guy on the last podcast. Talk about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Doctor Tom Noguchi. Yep. And uh, he he wrote. Um, he wrote a couple of books. He, he wrote one called uh, Corner at Large, I think is the name of it. And if you're just interested in kind of a, a fun read, it kind of gives you an idea about, about uh, uh, the world that he inhabited. I mean, he did the autopsies from Marilyn Monroe Ooh. to uh, 
Albert Decker, Sharon Tate, Inger yeah. Stevens, Janis Joplin, Gia Scala, David Jansen, William Holden, and John Belushi. That's a Michael Bodden type S resident resume right there. Yeah, he he's really something. Uh, William Holden was always interested, uh, interesting to me. He was a decomp. Uh, people don't realize that he was found decomposing in his in his home. Wow. But it, genuinely, just a sweet man. I mean, he he truly was. Oh, and, he's, he's still kicking. Yeah, he is. But he was he was a sweet man when I met him. He he didn't have to be kind to me, but he was. And the thing about Doctor he, like a hundred. Oh. <laughs> 96, man, good for him. Uh, Dr. Noguchi, uh, he did the autopsy, as you can see there, on uh, Senator Kennedy, when Senator Kennedy was, was assassinated. His wound was in the chest, right? Yeah, Wounds. and he, he was, yeah, he it was, it, there were two. Um, one was in the chest, that was the fatal wound. I, the other one was a flyer. I can't remember where, it, but it was, I, I think it was in a non-lethal region. Guess what, everybody? It is that time of year again. Football season is officially upon us, and you know what that means. It is time to place those bets. As a better, you demand perfection, and my bookie delivers. NFL, college football, and a brand new cash out system gives you the opportunity to bet and win all season long. First two legs of your parlay hit. With my bookie, you can cash out and place a new bet or let it ride for a chance at a bigger prize. So join the my bookie family for an entire season filled with daily odds boosts, same game parlays, and super contests. Oh yeah. There's also a special twist. Down below in the description, there's a link that will take you to download the app. Upon doing so, you can use the promo code DORY, D-O-R-E-Y, on a deposit of $50 or more to get up to $200 injected instantly right into your account. Once again, click that link below and use the promo code DORY, D-O-R-E-Y, on your first $50 deposit or more and get cash quick. This is what Tom Noguchi did. Um, the Kennedy family didn't want an autopsy or if they were going to get one, it was only going to be like a partial one for RFK. Yeah. They didn't learn their lesson. I don't know if they did, but guess who did? He did. Mm. So what Dr. Noguchi did, (laughs) he said, all right, boys, we're going to saddle up. And we're going to do this autopsy out here. He right? does not have a Southern Texas accent. Come no, on. he didn't. He I didn't. Was gonna say. I, I'm just kind I'm, of super. Looking, He's one of my heroes. So just give me a second. All I right. Was like, I was like biting my tongue. Not don't do a, a racist impression. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not doing a racist impression. I'm, no, I'm talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Noguchi said, not only are we going to do an autopsy, but this is how we're going to do it. It's going to be the most thorough autopsy that has ever been done. He invited forensic pathologists from AFIP. Mm. They came out to LA. Guess who was in the crowd? Not Curtis on me. <laughs> All right. I have no idea. You were, you were going to hurt me if you said that. No. Uh, um, Dr. Fink. Oh. The wound ballistics guy that had shown up. I'm not going to say late to. They just got started without him. And took the brain out before mm-hmm. he got there. Yeah. He was invited. He was one of the people there, not to mention he had other staff pathologists, forensic pathologists, not tumor pathologists, that were present for the autopsy. And when I say that they went from stem to stern, they did. 
they covered every single possibility because the one thing that I think that Tom Noguchi learned from this, um, he gained a lot of wisdom because even though there were not records that had been released, he was sensitive to the fact that he knew what a firestorm had been created, particularly within our community, you know, mm -hmm. within the forensic community, because look, <clears throat> we might not have had the records, but people talk and you go to meetings and you hear everything that happened. And, you know, it's a very small community. People knew Earl Rose. I'm sure that Dr. Noguchi did. He had run, run, run across his path at some point in time, I'm sure. He was not going to allow this to happen. And granted, God bless RFK, he was not the president of the United States, but his brother had just been assassinated five years earlier. He was part of the Kennedy family, obviously, goes without mm -hmm. saying, very high profile. There was a strong possibility he could have been the next president of the United States. He was going to be. And Tom Noguchi had an awareness of that. He he knew how much damage had been done at that point in time. I'm not going to say that by virtue of what Tom Noguchi did relative to RFK, that all of a sudden everything is rosy, you know, moving forward in the medical legal community. But it, I think that it established kind of how things would operate moving forward in the event that anything else happened like this. Of course, Justice Scalia, notwithstanding <laughs> being, being pronounced over the phone. But, you know, you you think about this. Uh, he, he kind of – he set the tenor and tempo of what we could expect in the future. I, you never say what is – you know, that it'll never happen. Even my grandma used to tell me that because you don't want to tempt fate or tempt God. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not saying that uh, other – Horrible things couldn't happen in the future where things are screwed up this bad. But he he set a standard by taking those simple steps in, in advance, and he had to learn, unfortunately, through through the assassination of a president. That's uh, yeah. I mean, that's like I don't care how long you've done something, or like it's like coming to work every day when you're dealing with life and death. In this case, the death side of it. Yeah of something that high profile. I mean, to me, it feels like NBA finals game seven, you know, one minute left and you're down two points like that kind of pressure. Yeah. And one more thing here about, about the situation he was in. Okay. Um, him being Dr. Noguchi uh, people, I think that people think that it's, it's disrespectful to say, you know, he's the corner to the stars. They've said that before that yeah, that's, that's that. not something Dr. Noguchi would say. Right. Um, <clears throat> but he was set up for that moment in time, I think, because he had done autopsies on Marilyn Monroe uh, and all these other people, these principals that were involved involved in, in this, you know, within uh, that sphere out there in Hollywood. And those are just a few of the people that he actually did autopsies on. You can imagine yeah. even the peripheral people that are out there during that period of time that are associated with that industry. He's He was, out of all the pathologists uh, <clears throat> in, in America at that point in time, He there was nobody better equipped to be um, used to the white hot spotlight 
of of the intensity of the media, I think, and uh, it just didn't it didn't matter to him. Um, one of the things, and I actually read this in his book, and I, I applied this uh, when I was a death investigator. Uh, Doctor Noguchi actually had a principle. I may have mentioned this previously, but it bears repeating. Um, he said that as humans, it, it's very easily easy for us when we go go onto a scene with the presence of a decedent in the room to focus on the decedent and what he, and this is a very Eastern way of thinking about things, Mm -hmm. but he said that when he would walk into a room, um, uh, say for instance, in a room with there is a deceased body and think about what he walked into the Tate LaBianca homicides. He was present at Sharon Tate's homicide. Um, It's the Manson murders for people out there. who don't know that, but pretty common knowledge. Dr. Noguchi said that he would look up. He would look up at the ceiling before he ever focused on the body because he didn't want to be distracted by the body. He wanted to look at all of the peripheral first and take all of that in before he finally allowed his gaze to fall upon the body. And he's not distracted, you know, because it's it's real easy, I think, to get tunnel vision. I think there's a lesson that can be taken away relative to um, to – uh, President Kennedy's assassination in that little nugget there too, um, you know. Obviously, you have you have the this destroyed body of of of, of a president there before you, and in those circumstances, we spent I think uh, we they spent so much time focused on trying to save him in the beginning. Um, and trying to remove him from that environment for whatever reason to get him back to allowing uh, decisions to be made outside of the medical legal realm about what kind of dissection was mm-hmm. going to be done uh, as to what was going to happen to the evidence without taking in the full picture. And the body is the concentric part of everything, that everything else, the body is merely the hub. We have all of these other things that we have to consider that kind of extend out from that hub. Um, this, I think for me, this is kind of the Zen of death investigation. You know, when you, you look at this and you try to view everything very broadly and then you, you focus in on, on, uh, that big piece of evidence. Um, and so many, so many times, so many things are lost, um, back then. Um, I think that they lost sight of things. They lost sight of everything else that was going on around them and, um, Unfortunately, we've suffered ever since then. Well, we look at recent history with global wars that are happening, right? You look at Ukraine, you look at Israel over the past couple of years, and the term that comes to mind, especially in the social media era and the AI era with manipulation cool. and stuff like that, <clears throat> is the fog of war, which yeah. has always been a thing, to be yeah. very clear. But it is so – it is so like – on hyperspeed at this point because everyone, including, you know, some asshole like me sitting in New Jersey has access to seeing whatever information is put up online. Everyone listening right now, they have access to see information that's put up online, deciding what's real, what's not, what's propaganda, what's not, what's manipulated, what's not, what's AI, what's not. It's so hard. And then no matter where you end up falling on the issue or feel about it, I mean, everyone hates war, but like, you know, you're constantly just like, I don't know what's going on. When you look at something like the Kennedy assassination, no internet back then or whatever, but you had mass media at this point alive for, 
the earlier parts, like as far as this was its earliest parts of history, early parts of TV, stuff like that. And everyone was getting their news from outlets and their information's flying around. But we also know less because there's not the internet with sluice and taking videos and pictures on right. the ground. Nonetheless, the fog of war on this is nuts. And the fog of war really occurs over give or take what, like a three-day period? Because yeah. Oswald was murdered, was it It was two days after. Yes, so it was. So you have... It was uh, uh, Friday and then Saturday, Sunday. Uh, right. While, while, um, um, while the president's funeral was going on, I, th- I think, or the, not well, the funeral, funeral but the procession, the procession was going on, yeah. Yeah, I, something was, they were back in D.C. doing like, yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah. ceremonies yeah. for him or whatever. But it's crazy how fast... This all happened, but how much and how many people and how many players and how many unknowns and how many Trump cards were in the middle of it? And it, it just – I don't know. It reminds me of now. And, and like when I went to – I remember watching JFK, the movie, for the first time, mm-hmm. which you know Oliver Stone gets – Gets a lot of criticism, but also does do a lot of research. You know, it doesn't mean everything he says is right and stuff like that. No, but JFK is is when you look at all the different things Oliver Stone has really dug his teeth into over the years. At least from what I've looked at, the place where he's built the strongest evidence of certain things is on that JFK case because he legit has been on that for yes since the seventies, right? So yeah. you know. That story – and I don't know how many people listening have seen JFK because it's an older movie now. It's a very famous movie. But that covered – and I don't remember if we hinted at this on the podcast or before when we were talking. But that covered the the Garrison case. Yes. Which happened in New Orleans where you are from. And it was the only trial that occurred in relation to JFK's assassination. The only prosecution, yeah. Only. Yeah. And it was – was it like 1968, I want to yes, say? Yes, it okay. was 68, 69, yeah, yeah. So the end result of the case was that the jury only deliberated for like an hour and came back against the prime defendant, Clay Shaw, who we'll get to, as being not guilty. Mm-hmm. And so Garrison took a lot of shit for it. Garrison was the DA of New Orleans and he <clears> – <throat> broke down the Warren report and realized it was all bullshit and just really sunk his teeth into this thing. But when you whether or not you want to say Clay Shaw had knowledge of it before he before the assassination or stuff like that, you can't argue with the fact that all the little pieces related to the government and figures who happened to be floating around New Orleans in the two years in particular yeah. leading up to this. Paint a picture of people who I don't care what you say. Some of them had to know or have an idea what was going down. And you were telling me before we got on air that you had – was it like someone close to you yeah, that yeah. worked – was around this case? Uh, yeah. One of my relatives is uh, – uh, was uh, – um, hmm. Was working for a prosecutor's office in New Orleans back in the sixties, and do the math there. <laughs> um, and actually knew David Ferry. Uh, Can you explain who he was? Yeah, David Ferry is. If you've seen the, Joe uh, yeah, Joe Pesci. Um, if you've ever seen the JFK movie, he's portrayed by Joe Pesci, and uh, was you know. Uh, 
according to my relative, accurately described. Um, and uh, bizarre little fellow. Um, and um, uh, and please, Joe, if you're listening to this, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about Joe, Joe, uh, David Ferry. Uh, he did a masterful job, I think, in that role. Um, uh, who was at least hinted at as being um, part of some of the covert ops, uh, what they referred to as uh, uh, the training of uh, Cuban guerrillas. And, <laughs> you know, he would, he had, to, he had, uh, I think he had alopecia, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And he had lost his hair and he used to make homemade wigs and he would paint on his eyebrows and all these sorts of things. He was um, a former pilot with Delta Airlines and he had some, um, questionable moral decisions he had made in his life. But I think probably one of the most <clears throat> um, striking things about him um, was the fact that uh, he was a leader in a civil air patrol group in New Orleans. And there's a famous picture of him uh, building a campfire and Lee Harvey Oswald is there as a teenager. <laughs> And that, and that particularly, uh, you know, my, my son was in Civil Air Patrol. Um, and, um, you know, I, it's a very small, not a lot of people know about Civil Air Patrol. It's a great organization. Um, but, it, you know, I, when I, I see that image and I think about the connectivity between Ferry and New Orleans and Oswald, um, it, it seems odd to say the very least uh, uh, it's certainly intellectually intriguing. Um, and what he may or may not have known, what kind of interactions he had with Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, during that period of time. Um, and he, he was involved on certain levels with, uh, uh, a variety of different types of, uh, petty crimes as well. But he was on, he was on the radar from a governmental standpoint, uh, then you think about Dean Andrews, who was, um, and I recommend anybody that has he's he's the character that um, that uh, John Candy uh, portrayed in that movie. And my, my relative, uh, who worked in a prosecutor's office down there, knew uh, Mr. Andrews as well. And he John Candy was so fucking spot on with that impression. Uh, yeah, Scary. and as a matter of fact, if you watch the two two versions of this. Uh, I, ha I have the we definitely can't play the Oliver Stone one, but people can look that up and real fast. I'll play this real quick. I have the actual guy. If you want to see this real fast, I'll stick this in our ears so we can hear it. Manny Garcia Gonzalez and Ricardo Davis. Did you know Mr. Gonzalez? No. Did you know Mr. Davis? No. Where did you get those names? Out the air. In other words, these names were fictional as far as you were concerned? Well, I'm trying to see if his cat's kosher, you know. <laughs> so what? So he's kosher, I don't know. Uh... So you just picked two names out of the air? Right. Now, why did you do that? Well, I don't know what he's up to. He's picking me like chicken, shucking me like corn, stewing me like an oyster. I mean, he ain't put nothing down but air. So I'll give him two names, see which way he's going. In other words, you made up two names to see what he was going to do with them. Right. What did he do with them? Well, I don't know. I haven't done anything yet. That is, so if you go watch the John Candy doing him, it's 
spot on, like scary spot. Yeah, on. it really is. And uh, this is a quintessential New Orleans character. He's got the what's referred to as the Yat accent, which some people say uh Pagery. Yeah, a poetry. Uh yeah. true to true to garbage cans. It's 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 akin to a Brooklyn accent. People find that odd, particularly in the deep south, but it's one of those little interesting little asides about New Orleans and there's all kinds of reasons why people speak like that down there. But I have family that speak like that. But uh yeah, Dean Andrews was certainly an interesting character and one of the ways he plays into into this whole story is that he was a local attorney um and he had allegedly been contacted by a person named uh, Clay Bertrand to uh, represent Lee Harvey Oswald um, for any number of reasons. And it, as it turned out, Clay Bertrand was alleged to actually be Clay Shaw, who was the founder of the trademark in, in New Orleans. And um, you might, people, I don't know if they know this or not, but uh, it's only mentioned very briefly in in Stone's movie, but what's what really brings Shaw into focus here is the fact that he founded what's referred to as the International Trademark, which for anybody that's ever been to the quarter in New Orleans, uh, it sits right on the river. It's this really old-looking building. The structure itself is referred to as the International Trademark Building. And it's uh, kind of got a circular a big, it looks like a big spaceship. It's very 60s looking. It's got a revolving restaurant at the top. But anyway, what took place in that building was that Shaw had interest in Latin and, and South America, Latin America, um, import, export, all that sort of thing. And at the time, New Orleans was a major and still is a major port of entry for a lot of stuff coming up from Latin America. And of course, we know the connection um, with uh, with some of the um, uh, things that have been uh, put forth about Lee Harvey Oswald and representing uh, the the Cuban communist support, mm -hmm. uh, he was actually arrested uh, in mm -hmm. in New Orleans. That's documented. Uh, so you Shaw had connected allegedly with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, and this was one of the things that. Garrison was putting forth that there was actually he knew that Oswald was in New Orleans, was domiciled in New Orleans, had been moving around town. Uh, he also kind of came in contact with a very unsavory character who's a retired FBI agent down there named Gay uh, Guy Bannister, mm -hmm. um, who um, shared shared office space with uh, or in the same building. Uh, where uh, Lee Harvey Oswald had been housed for a, a period of time. So he had all kinds of baggage in his background, too, government-wise. Yeah, yeah, he did. And so, you know, uh, Garrison, you know... That was Ed Asner he, in that movie, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. A very brutal uh, portrayal. He really yeah. uh, beat Jack Lemmon up pretty badly in yeah. that. Um, <clears throat> so Garrison's whole purpose there was to try to complete this circle and to try to give an idea that there was some type of conspiracy that was hatched in New Orleans. Um, he didn't uh, uh, convince the jury at that time, as you said, when the trial, when it actually uh, came to trial, uh, they deliberated, deliberated for a very short period of time. Of course, Clay Shaw went free, but this is the one thing that, that uh, Garrison did do. Um, and by the way, um, I don't know that his career was necessarily ruined after that, but he did become a judge finally. Um, 
he he was not as highly regarded. Uh, I think a lot of people saw what he had done as being wasteful. But looking back retrospectively, um, he, gangster. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it, you know you talk about being brave in the <laughs> face of adversity when every because none of the stuff and he was trying to compel the National Archives to release a lot of this information that still to this day they're trying to release. And, and I can't believe that guy lived. Yeah, that's that's kind of a and I think, you know, he was very high profile. And uh, for that period of time, he really was. He stayed in the news constantly. Um, maybe that's the one thing that saved him. I have no idea if if we are to think about, you know, other people having impacts on individuals lives um, in a negative way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, it, it just it's amazing that that's the only case that ever got brought. I mean, if you can't, if you can't put two and two together here and see that clearly there were other forces at play from the inside, I kind of can't help you. You know, I, I struggled for a long time when I was more casual on the case. I kind of struggled with that a little bit. But once, once I got bitten by the bug and was really going deep into it, I'm like, you know, we always talk about like those gaps and not trying to fill them with what you want to be true. Right. I'm very careful with that. Th this is, this is so obvious. This one, it's so obvious that it just blows my mind. Yeah. And we can, we can sit around and opine about a lot of things, but uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, bringing it back to a death investigation. What can you prove? Um, and, um, one of the problems is, is that when you have an absence of you, you, you sense that there is something there, but when you have an uh, an absence of evidence in order to physical evidence, uh, certainly in my case, what I'm really interested in, um, and you have an absence of these things, like the president's brain, um, <laughs> <clears throat> um, you begin to look at this and think, well, I know that there's something here, but how am I actually going to if 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 I were to have to prove this in court, how could I go about it? And it's not really me. It's like, you know, the examinations that a medical legal agency would do, how are you going to take that data and pass it on to a prosecutor that has the guts to prosecute something like this and then say that a homicide has been committed and this is who committed the homicide? Can you directly tie them to this? Um, and I think that even if we did have have all of the physical evidence still – who are you going to point the finger at relative to all the peripherals that are involved in it? Yeah, because it, it's hiding behind organizations. So it's like, are you picking and choose if you pick out one or two people here and there? Which, I mean, they really did that with a guy who, Clay, Clay Shaw, who was on really the periphery of stuff more than anything. It's not like he put Curtis LeMay right. in the box there. Yeah, uh, and Clay Shaw, you know, it's not like he was, uh, uh, you know, headquartered in Langley or something like that. He wasn't, um, no. you know, and you know, he's, he's working in, he's working in New Orleans, you know, living a life down there as the president of the trademark, you know, doing business in Latin America and, you know, people in business, you know, they come in contact with a lot of unsavory people many times. We all come in contact with a lot of unsavory people, but when you're doing business abroad like that, you don't know who you're going to cross paths with. The, the trick is, and to try to understand it, and I don't know that anybody fully has, um, was, was he actually working for some uh, U.S. government agency? And I, I don't know if they have evidence that would hold up at this point in time or not. So I, th that. I think this can go 
this one's a little complex because at the end of JFK in the credits, Oliver Stone says years later the CIA admitted that he had worked for them or whatever. And it was – I, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was very broad. And if you look, I think it might even be – on his Wikipedia. Okay. Later disclosures. In 1979, Richard Helms, former director of the CIA, testified under oath that Shaw had been a part-time contact of the domestic contact service, DCS, of the CIA, where Shaw volunteered information from his travels abroad, mostly to Latin America. Like Shaw, 150,000 Americans, businessmen and journalists, etc., had provided – the journalist thing is a little scary – had provided such information to the DCS by the mid-1970s on a non-clandestine basis. That's in quotes. And that, quote, such acts of cooperation should not be confused with an actual agency relationship, unquote. Now, when Oliver Stone doesn't give all that context and just said he worked for the CIA, that's not really fair. However, if you read between the lines here – this feels like government speak, like, oh, yeah, no, don't worry. You know, we, we asked him a question one time. Everyone does it. Don't worry about it. You know, he's among 150,000. He's among 150,000. <laughs> don't worry. By the way, there's some journalists in there. Don't worry about that. It's all good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that, that is quite feel, terrifying. Yeah. It feels a little off, but here's the other side to that. You could argue, minus everyone likes to paint all these government organizations as evil these days. And I, I don't agree with that. I think there's a lot of nuance on these things. But, you know, you think about the times this was happening when he was doing this, the 1950s, 1960s. You know, there's the Cold War going on. He's an international businessman. He might be a patriot. And government says, hey, can you let us know about a couple things? That's my that's my duty. I'll I'll let you know. Absolutely. And, I would I could see that. And here here's another little aside that kind of in a roundabout way comes back to this. Um, I'm I'm going back to Cyril Weck now, and uh, I saw uh, he he gave he's a, the pathologist from Pittsburgh we talked about. Yeah, he he actually gave uh, gave a talk at the uh, uh, at the museum the uh, uh, the book depository, and um, I think if I'm not mistaken. I listened to his lecture. Um, he had stated uh, that first off, he was he was the only contrarian that they had ever allowed in. You know, because when when you go to the when you go to that museum, it's all about Lee Harvey Oswald kill <laughs> kill Kennedy. And so you this know, museum brought to you by Central Intelligence Agency. <laughs> Doctor Weck has has always been very brave in what he has stated um, about um, about his concerns relative to. Uh, to the investigation, uh, he's actually the one that you know famously uh, uh, came up with this magical path of the magic bullet, and uh, demonstrates it. And actually, still in talks that he gives, he does this demonstration. He'll bring people up out of the crowd, and it's kind of it's it's interesting to do. He actually did a demonstration year before last at CronCon, where he brought brought uh, uh, some of the audience members up on stage and and demonstrated, and it was. It's sad. It's a little bit comical to see him do it, but it is very sad because, you know, you're talking about the president and, of course, Governor Connolly being shot. But here's something that, that uh, Dr. Weck made a point of. He said that when he was able to, he uh, he actually purchased a copy. He said it cost him 75 bucks at the time, which would have been a sizable amount of money, um, and acquired, uh, I think, uh, one of the first runs of the Warren Commission report. And this thing is voluminous. I mean, it's it's multiple volumes, goes on and on and on. And so he was so excited, and 
he said when he's you know uh, Dr. Wet gets very uh, animated when he talks. He's he's fascinating to to listen give a lecture. Um, he said, I was so very excited, you know, and he says, I, I got my, uh, uh, I got my, my volumes here and, uh, I'm, I'm, I want to go, uh, directly to look at all of the pathology notes. And he says, I go to the last volume and I open it up and there's no indices. There's no index in any of this. So if you're going to seek something out, now this is, you were talking about the days before the internet. If you wanted to read this thing, there is no index in there so that you How can't, you, you cannot go back and readily access something. Like if you wanted to see any kind of supplemental report relative to um, uh, uh, a report that the FBI had filed, uh, or if you wanted to see, for instance, uh, a copy of the autopsy report and what it actually said, you couldn't just merely, you know, like we do with uh, with an index, you know, you look it up and you go directly to it. It wasn't there. So you had to hunt and peck for this thing. He said that <clears throat> this uh, one lady who's a fellow researcher of his, it's passed on now, she went in and actually created her own index by hand of this thing. And he said it was this Herculean task for her to have done this. Real quick to all my Discord people out there, the Julian Dory Discord is officially live. I put the link down in the description below. So go hit that, join the community, and say what's up. There's all kinds of features in there, and I look forward to hearing from you guys. Let's get it popping. But, you know, he was talking about looking in the rearview mirror, you know, relative to uh, kind of the battles he's fought about this, um, how there have been a lot of people now uh, that – were there in the beginning when all of this happened. And this has gone on so long now, Julian, that a lot of this, you know, Dr. Weck is getting close to the last man standing. Most people are dead. Yeah, that that actually were there. You know, um, you think about Earl Rose. I think Earl Rose died back in, you know, the mid uh, 2000, maybe 2011. That will probably be, uh, probably proved wrong on that. But um, he's gone, you know, and we're losing – uh, to your earlier statement, we're losing the connection that we might have had um, with with all of those people, those threads that extend back in time to those people that were there on the ground, uh, that were there, that that saw and heard all of those things and and experienced them at that moment in time. And still to this day, we we don't have any definitive answers. Certainly, nothing that uh, uh, that we can kind of hang our hat on and. I guess all of us at the end of the day just just want somebody to take responsibility or tell us who was responsible. Yeah, we need that. And I, I as people, you know what I mean. I, I we yearn I, for it. I think that we do. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I think that uh, for whatever reason, stuff is still closed off. It's inaccessible, even though um, you know, even uh, there was supposed to be a big document dump and. 2017 and right. still stuff was held back at that point in time. They just held stuff again, I think. <clears throat> but it's not It's like we were talking about a, a few minutes back. If it's 10 years later and you're a good person, right? You're a good person and you go work at I don't know, in Curtis LeMay's old office, right? Yep. And for the sake of argument, not only do you think and know you're a good person, let's say this person really is a good person, and you find out the truth, and you're a patriot and you care a lot about what can be accomplished, not just by you but by some other good people in this office, and that person is gone. 
whoever it was, they're gone. You're in a lose-lose now, but you're incentivized to be like, they fucked up, but we won't. People can't know about this. You are, and, and see, we need it. We need it in society. We have to, that's why when, as you well know, when a murder happens, the detectives have to close the case. They got it. They got to get something on it. Throw someone in there, throw it on camera, get it in a courtroom, throw them in prison. Everyone go about their life. Right. Got to be closed end. Yeah. People, people don't like, um, unanswered questions. Um, and unfortunately in, in my line of work, uh, I, and I'm I'm just thinking about day to day cases. I, I I can not necessarily provide all of the answers um, that everybody might want, or that that I might want as just you know as just a trying to be a decent human being. Um, I, I don't know. I think that the the trouble with JFK for me is that it was it was such a bold action in front of witnesses, and again in broad daylight. Um, the fact that an individual would do or individuals would do this on such a grand scale yeah. and have no shame about it whatsoever. And, and all these years later, um, we have absolutely no accountability for it. Uh, nobody. And, uh, you know, I, I think about, <clears throat> I think re recently, um, you know, uh, within the last month, uh, they are, they found and arrested uh, another uh, guard from a Nazi concentration camp. Yeah, and man. this guy's like ninety eight years old, mm -hmm. and and still, you know that <laughs> that's persistence, and that goes all the way back, obviously, to the forties. You know when this has occurred, because their government doesn't exist anymore. That's the thing. That's the difference. Duly their, noted. Their government's gone. Yeah. If it's people who did a bad thing. Even if it's they're operating outside of the government, yeah. but they held the title where they went to in their office every day, said the USNA on the on the door. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's a great example. I, it's, I, there's a guy Eli Rosenbaum. I think he's in New York. Who's like the head of, I think it's Wiesenthal Center. Yeah, who mm -hmm. was an unbelievable Nazi hunter until the day he died. Yes, and he like, was. Eli is still hunting down mm -hmm. who's left. You know, yeah. and there's not many, but he's like, if there's any justice to bring to these people, let's do it. And there's something, there's a closed circle about that. And we're not going to get that in this one. And, and like I said a while ago, unfortunately, I get it. Like, it's not to, I certainly don't want to be a bootlicker about it. I want to see those goddamn documents, but. Man, are you stuck between a shit and a fart with that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess you kind of are, Julian. Yeah, it's <laughs> good visual for it. <laughs> it was actually that jumped to mind. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> can, can I, I? There's something that was hanging out there from way earlier that we got off of yeah. when when I was interrupting you throughout the timeline with so many damn questions. But you had mentioned it and left it open ended where you were talking about the gun residue on test on. Lee Harvey Oswald's face and body. And I think what you said was they concluded it was on there or whatever. And then you were mm -hmm. like, I mean, that's what they conclude. Like, so what, what do you mean by that? How, is there some sort of cover up with that test? And why do you think that? No, I, I don't necessarily think again, if we, if we, uh, if we believe, which, uh, if we believe that 
that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald fired a weapon. I don't necessarily think that there is a cover-up relative to that. Uh, and if, if in fact, he and it would be within the time frame uh, from having uh, discharged that weapon, uh, the close proximity uh, to the bolt and the trigger housing, um, yeah, you'd have deposition on his skin, on his face, on his hands, that sort of thing. It, it and you know now we don't <clears throat> we don't use paraffin any longer. Uh, that's that's been gone for a number of years now. There's a, a chemical test that's that's done and taken a place, and they're not always accurate. Uh, by the way, I think people think that you'll always get a, a positive every time you know, somebody. They've actually done tests where people have worked in munitions factories and they've done GSR tests on their hands and they don't come back with anything. Um, but yeah, in this particular case, they did, and for that time, paraffin is what they went with. Uh, so they had those elements that were contained in that capture in that moment in time. I, I, you know, I don't know. I guess they couldn't manufacture that or say that, uh, you know, he did have it when he didn't. I mean, who's going to argue, you know, uh, whether or not that test is, is accurate and true. Um, and again, that, that's something that, um, taken in total here, they took the time to take that test on him and to uh, put that through their processing and came back with an answer very quickly. But, you know, I see these images of this one uh, investigator, um, you know, walking almost triumphantly around um, in his bare hands, mind you, uh, holding this weapon above his head and demonstrating it for everyone to see. And then you see this other image of uh, an investigator walking down the sidewalk, carrying the weapon, uh, holding it uh, by the sling as he's walking down the street. It's right. it's not packaged or preserved right. in any way. So you begin to think about, uh, you know, the provenance of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of whatever evidence has been collected. You know, how do you go back and validate that? And, and how was it handled at that particular time? And, and certainly people understood, I think, just from a fingerprint standpoint, that, um, you know, fingerprints, uh, palm prints, all that sort of thing are, are very, uh, uh, very fragile. Um, and, uh, but yet there they are demonstrating it for the whole world. Yeah. And you have written down on here, by the way, I'm looking at your timeline that it's seven. So we had talked earlier, I know about Lee Harvey Oswald's first interrogation occurring a hundred or <clears throat> 80 minutes after he was arrested at 3 PM right. central time. And then at six twenty. He goes into a second interrogation. So, def I'm. I mean, I think they'd have him in there for hours with an interrogation. Yeah, you would. And at some point in time, I think that there was a lineup that they conducted as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and again, they're covering their bases with that. Um, he, um, and my understanding as well is that uh, he had not um, been afforded counsel, which is which is interesting too. Uh, that. Uh, uh, you know, and he's, and here they are, you know, how, how often, you know, now today you think about him being paraded before the cameras. And of course he had famously said, I'm just a patsy, mm -hmm. um, as he's, you know, uh, at, at headquarters there, but you know, he's, he's making comments. He's actually given an interview <laughs> on camera Crazy there. Yeah. And it, it was, it was, uh, quite amazing. I'm, I'm really surprised that they would allow him to say anything or that they, that he would be given access to, to media 
at that point in time. But um, you know, they were punching air up in D.C. in the Pentagon. I'm like, who the fuck let these Texas detectives put this guy out there? <laughs> yeah, and get uh, Ruby in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, no kidding. Uh, and, and so you know, he's it's an all access pass too. Uh, the again, you know, even Ruby going back to him, um, he he had access to. Uh, the police that other people would not normally have. You know, a lot of the cops that occupied that space, they'd come by the carousel club periodically, you know, the strip joint that, that he, that he operated. Mm. Uh, he was, he was well known to them. And uh, that's the rationalization for, you know, why would this guy have been allowed into that secured area in the basement down there? Um and have access to Ruby as or Oswald as he's being led out by the two detectives, and he steps forward and uh, he caps him right there in front of God and everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, you know, there's no guarantee that that shot could have been fatal, but he got so close to him, he was able to put that almost in his belly and fire that weapon. And Lee Harvey Oswald was dead pretty soon thereafter. And with him died any kind of further, you know, further uh, examination of him, certainly. And I'm talking about from a perspective of, of uh, interview or an interrogation or anything like that. It's nuts. And and he had a ton of, he had a ton of mafia ties too. Yes. Ruby. I mean, he, obviously he wasn't like in the family, he wasn't Italian, but like he was a long time, mob associate we know some of the history there with the kennedy family and the mafia as well it's just so it's so messy like and obvious at the same time but then it's also i don't don't even know but you also have written down here at 750 lho lee harvey oswald third interrogation these are that's what i keep saying these are like fast interrogations here like i i would think they'd have this guy in there for four days but you have immediately following lineup. So that's when they did the lineup. And it says Harvey Oswald's finger and palm prints are taken on an inkless pad. Mm-hmm. Is that supposed to be an inked pad? No? Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a pad do? that where you can just act, actually do almost like a plastic print where you, you depress depress your hand into it. It's going to leave, leave the – because um, – I always tell my students this. These are not fingerprints right here that we have on our hands. These are friction ridges. We leave behind a fingerprint. Mm. And so when you depress into uh, the surface, it leaves it leaves behind an impression which is captured, almost like a mold, if you will. Um, and so you've got that captured for that moment in time. So when they would have done the fingerprint, you know, thumb, all fingers, and then there would be an expanded one where you would do the actual palm print where you're going to catch um, all of the minutiae that's contained on the surface of the palm as well. And so what they're looking looking for there is to see if they could find anything on the weapon that would give you a, an idea that he had contacted it um, where his hand would have perhaps been supporting the weapon. Was he actuating the bolt You know, when he grabbed it, pulled it back? Because these are... Particularly the bolt, any of the the metal areas on this weapon are, um, they're not completely non-porous. Like if you think about a mirror, for instance, when you're thinking about latent prints, those things, latent means unseen. So that's the reason they dust. Um, On metal surfaces, it's essentially non-porous. So smooth, non-porous surfaces, those are some of the best locations to get latent prints off of. 
Wood's a bit more difficult, even mm-hmm. though you can do it. Um, so that's what they're looking for, points of contact relative to this. Um, <clears throat> I wonder as well, um, because there's a famous image of, of uh, actually a, a moving picture image of uh, one of the, the techs actually dusting dusting the weapon. This is amazing, you know, that you actually have them doing this at that moment, Tom, and he's dusting this weapon uh, where he's doing the dance with, uh, with the fingerprint brush like this, where you're spinning it like a ballerina and kind of uh, applying the, applying the, the dust there to see if it's going to contact with the fatty lipids that are left behind that, you know, that raise this print, this latent print that's unseen. Um, and, you know, and I think back, uh, the Carcano has uh, an indwelling magazine, which means um, in order to load it, you can either load it uh, round by round. And if you're loading it round by round, guess what you have to do? You're taking, oh, yeah, you gotta... you're pressing it mm-hmm. down with your thumb. So you're taking one round and putting it on top of another like that and pressing it down. Where those rounds, were were they ever printed? Uh, I'd like to know that. You know, was there any evidence that there was a latent print found on any of those? Um, uh, the ejected cartridges. Was there any evidence of of uh, his his contact there? Um, you know, today in the world that we're in right now, we'd be looking for things like DNA. You know, uh, any kind of touch DNA that might be left behind. But of course, um, that doesn't exist today, or didn't exist back then. I mean, I've kind of not beat around the bush with some of the ideas I have about this assassination today, and there probably being some sort of at least people related to within the government conspiracy. But what are, in all the years you've looked at this case, what do you think happened? Um, ooh, sorry about that. You're good. Um, <clears throat> I think that it's very hard uh, to, if you're talking about Oswald, uh, as they have framed him over the years as this, you know, the lone nut assassin. Um, I, I don't know that he would have been bright enough to have pulled this off. And particularly given his past, um, just the acquisition of the job at the school book depository. I think that that's, that's a real interesting position for him to have been in. Uh, you know, being there at that particular time, having employment there, having access to what became known as the sniper's nest, um, had, why, why would he have, this much anger and hatred toward this man, uh, our president, that he would want to run the risk. Uh, he's essentially a new father. He's got a wife at home um, who doesn't speak very good English. He's brought her over from Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that he's defected previously. We know that he was involved at some level in not necessarily uh, signals intelligence, but he was involved as a radarman. Uh, there, you know, he was, he spent time, uh, tracking, um, uh, tracking U2 flights. Uh, yeah, there's so, questions around him with Gary Powers and that whole thing. Yeah. And Gary Powers went down, uh, 
you know, was shot down. Um, I think he had flown out of Turkey uh, when that, that was the base that he flew out of. I mean, he's going to be snapping shots. Uh, did and, and, you know, I don't know who else may have been involved that had a military background that would understand that technology at that time, at, at, such as it was. Did, <clears throat> but, but how did he have the resources in order to facilitate all of this without being connected to other people? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I believe in, in my heart of hearts, I think that there uh, had to be at least one other person, certainly on the ground that day, that, was, will, that was wielding a weapon. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And beyond that, I, I can't really and, – and that's truly for me from, from just kind of the physical science, uh, truly for me, um, that's demonstrated in the headshot. Um, when I begin to think about the dynamics of that event, the position of it, um, the, the idea that you've got the president uh, who is in that position at that particular time, he takes one shot that winds up that's really actually kind of, if you look at it, an individual would have been firing center mass on his uh, on his body, looking down the long axis of his back. Um uh, and if the shot rose a little bit, it's okay because anything above that level is lethal. Um, you've got another shot flying wild, and then there's going to you you've got the idea that you've got this one person maybe that's over to the right and forward of the motorcade that can pull the trigger and it can that'll be the coup de gras that will take him out that will guarantee that he is not going to leave Dallas alive. So yeah, I think that there's more than one person. Fair enough. Well, this, Joseph, this was awesome, as I knew it would be. Your breakdown of the case from a scientific perspective was pretty amazing. So I really appreciate you doing this. And for people out there who want to go follow your work, I would highly recommend they check you out on Twitter. You're on there all the time. You're on every TV station known to man every week. So whenever there's a case and somebody died, look for this guy. He's on TV. Was there anything else we can help you with to, to promote right now? Uh, I, I don't, uh, do you guys validate parking? Yeah, we, we, we got you, bro. We got you covered right No, there. I, no, really. Uh, yeah, just check me out. And there's, I will tell you this one thing. Uh, and I think this episode is probably going to drop, uh, relative We're going to drop this. it on the 21st, I think. Um, coming up not too long after, I think probably the weekend of, uh, uh, the weekend of Thanksgiving. Uh, I'm starring in um, starring in uh, um, a docu series. This could be a two parter or a three parter on Oxygen Network. Uh, it's a passion project of mine that I've been involved with on the podcast for a number of years. Uh, if people are familiar with the podcast, it's Body called, Bags. No, <laughs> it's called the Piketon Massacre. Oh, uh, this is a different one. Uh, well, I've been involved with this case uh, for a number of years, covering it on the podcast, but. Um, the television series. Got it's it. a television docu series that's called the Pikeman Murders. Probably one of the most bizarre. Uh, eight people killed in one night at four separate locations by another family. Um, 
and it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. But it was uh, such a joy to be a part of and kind of tell the story from a forensics perspective. Very excited about that. So that's going to be premiering on Oxygen and Peacock and all that sort of stuff. Very cool. Uh, the weekend of Thanksgiving, following Thanksgiving. Remind me right when it comes out, and I'll provide I'll put a direct link in the description and update the show because it'll be a few days later. And yeah, follow me on Body Bags. Yeah, uh, your, show, two, your podcast, Body Bags. Yeah, two two new episodes every week. Very excited about that. Uh, have a lot of fun doing that and um it is a purely forensics podcast where i just try to concentrate on the science and not get into a lot of uh, a lot of the peripheral stuff with it just kind of break down cases so that everybody will come away and kind of learn a little bit of forensic science maybe a little general science even uh and be hopefully a little edified they'll learn broader scientific constructs from just listening to some of the forensics perhaps that's really good physics stuff. biology chemistry all you have sort of great stuff. you have great cases on there and great history lessons about about forensics it's awesome I'll, I'll put that link down in the description but thank you so much for coming in today thank you julian all right Appreciate it, everybody else you know what it is give it a thought get back to me peace and don't forget to smash that subscribe button and hit that like button on the video before you leave thank you